we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. And our guest this week is Tony Provoznik, who's a retired Border Patrol agent, but a pretty high up one. He retired as head of the Border Patrol in the Yuma, Arizona sector. That's the western part of Arizona. And he, uh, you know, as such, I think has a good deal that he can tell us about what used to go on at the border, what has gone on more recently at the border. He was kind enough to speak to our group during a recent border tour in the Yuma area. And so I thought it would be uh, good for listeners to have Tony visit with us for half an hour or so. So, Tony, thanks for doing the interview. And if you could tell us, start just a little bit about, you know, sort of what's your background? How'd you get into the Border Patrol? How does anybody do that? Yeah, absolutely. Good morning, Mark. Good to uh, talk to you again. I uh, enjoy our visit last week when you brought your group out here to Yuma. I tell you, you know, when I was growing up, I grew up in the Midwest, Southern Illinois, and I had really no idea that there was a United States Border Patrol. Hmm. I went out to uh, San Diego, California, right after high school, and I really didn't find out about about it then. I stayed out there for a couple of months and, and went back to Illinois and lived there for several more years and decided that I wanted to live in California. So I moved to San Diego and I worked construction for a couple of years there. And during that time, I had a friend that had been in the Border Patrol and he told me that I should uh, join the Border Patrol. And my initial thought was, no, I really don't want to be a, a police officer. I don't really think I want to do that. And he told me, no, it's nothing like that. I think you really like it, a lot of adventure. So I took the test and the interview. And back then, the interview process was really very interesting process. It was probably two hours or so with three agents, and they really work you over in that interview. And if by the end of that, you don't really want to be a Border Patrol agent, you know, you probably have a good reason. So they try to talk you out of it, basically? Oh, they just give you every scenario and really make it difficult and frustrating for you. And you start to think, I really want to be part of this. And so you can't win anything because the scenarios are things like they put you in these situations where your radio's broke, you have a flat tire, no one knows where you're at, you have to save lives and defend yourself and all these sort of impossible scenarios that you have to try to figure out a way through. So in the Star Trek sense, I don't know if you're, you're probably not a Star Trek fan, but it's sort of the Kobayashi Maru approach where they give you no-win situations just to see how you react. Exactly. And see if you can continue to work solutions to the problem and never give up. Hmm. Interesting. So once you got in, where did you serve? Were you just in uh, 
you know, that part of the border or did they move you around? Where, where'd you work? Well, back then, typically as a rule, you were going to be assigned at least a hundred miles from where you applied or where the thought was that you apply where you, you live right. and uh, where you grew up. And so to sort of combat any potential corruption, you were going to be assigned somewhere at least a hundred miles away. So you, your buddies you went to high school with and college and whatever didn't try to convince you to smuggle dope for them or, sure. or whatever. So I applied in San Diego and then I started 1988, December 1988 in Flexco, California. And, you know, interestingly at that time when I was at the academy 88 and I got out of the academy in 89, the day before graduation, they told us, oh, by the way, we hope you read the small print because we can detail you wherever we want for 30 days. And we're seeing you all directly from the academy. And we'd been there close to six months at the academy. Mm-hmm. And they sent us right from there to McAllen sector. At the time, it was McAllen sector. Now it's Rio Grande Valley sector. Right in South Texas. So it's the other end of the border. Exactly. Because there was a significant influx of Central Americans, primarily Nicaraguans at that time. And so they had a Port Isabel, they had a camp over there and they had all these people staying there and they needed help with perimeter security and court security. And so they detailed every other graduating border patrol class over there to help with that. And you were all there for 30 days and then had your post academy training uh, while you were there and you worked six days a week. And then they let you go back to your duty station. Interesting. But then you did serve in California and Arizona after that, right? My first duty station was Flexco, California, the all central sector. In uh, 1992, when I was still in Flexco, I tried out for and made the uh, Border Patrol tactical unit called BORTAC. Like a SWAT team, basically. Yeah. Right. Special operations tactical team for the Border Patrol. And was almost immediately within a few weeks of graduating went to Los Angeles for the Rodney King riots. And then later that year, a detail in San Diego. And then after that, I went to Bolivia to serve Operation Snowcap with the DEA, which was the DEA and the Mortac team that were out looking for typically precursors to cocaine production and also coca paste, which a lot of that was made there in Bolivia and then shipped over to Colombia for the final processing and the cocaine to be then imported and smuggled into the United States. It's interesting they sent Border Patrol agents out to do that. The reason, the initial reason for that was because they wanted to set up checkpoints throughout Bolivia and they knew that Border Patrol had checkpoint experience. Interesting. And you know Spanish too, right? I mean, that was a requirement. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a Spanish-speaking country, so yeah. Interesting. Interesting. It's almost like the subject of that Tom Clancy book, Clear and Present Danger. I mean, I'm sure yeah. it wasn't as dramatic as that, but it's uh, it's interesting. I didn't I didn't know we actually did that kind of thing in real life. Yeah, it was not as dramatic as that. What <laughs> we did, we worked with the Bolivians, uh, a unit called Umopar, and we would have informants come into the camp where we stayed in the Chima Ray down in the uh, jungle, and we would debrief the informants, find out where there were coca labs out in the jungle. We would put together a team, get some Bolivians with us, and we would either helicopter out in Huey helicopters to the location, or we would drive 
to the location. And then a lot of times we had to do hike or hump for a significant distance to uh, go way back into the jungle and find these. And sometimes we apprehended people. Sometimes we would get shot at or they would fire off warning shots. And, you know, we would eventually find the location and typically we just burn it down there in the jungle. It didn't spread because it was very wet there. Right. And so that was our mission over there. And, and then also to run these checkpoints and look for the precursors that people were bringing into the area to process the coca leaf into the, eventually into the coca paste and then take that and sell it to the Colombians. So as far as the, as far as our border actually goes, from your experience patrolling a border, what has changed over your career? How is it different being an agent on the line from, you know, what it was, say, in the late 80s or early 90s to today? Well, back then, we had a lot less manpower, and so we were stretched very thin. And once I went to San Diego, that was the, the hot spot in the country at the time. Right. And, you know, that's the you know, subject of the, I don't know if you ever read the book by Joseph Wambuck, the Lines and Shadows and no, all of the bandit activity that happened along the border. That was right before I got there. Mm-hmm. But there was a significant influx. Uh, we would catch a half a million people a year just in the San Diego sector. And back then, the highest time was 1.6 million apprehensions and a half a million of those came from the San Diego sector, which right. is one of the smallest sectors. It's not the smallest. It's about 60 miles of linear border. It had a high, pretty high concentration at the time. You know, we had in the neighborhood of 10,000 border patrol agents, which was up from when I came in in 1988, when we had about 3,500 border patrol agents. Right. And right now we're at 19,000 plus. Right. Somewhere between 19 and 20,000. But, you know, going there, working as an agent and a senior agent, you had a lot of flexibility. You were very busy. I got on the what they call the REACT team there in San Diego. We worked all over the sector, really the difficult areas or where they needed to focus some more manpower throughout the sector. We would apprehend some stations, 1,000, 1,500 people in a shift. Wow. On a night shift. This was before there was much of any fencing at all there, right? We had some landing mat, which is the old Vietnam-era landing mat they used to use in Vietnam to land uh, helicopters on. They had the landing mat, a fence, and we had a fence crew that went, and they put this landing mat fence up, and their smugglers were always cutting it, pulling it down, crashing into it to knock it down, just different things. But regardless, without the fence, it was real chaos, and with the fence, it was a little bit more controlled chaos because we could sort of shape the traffic and it just basically slowed it down so that it would give us an opportunity to be able to deploy and move along the border where we needed to be. Yeah, but now they have in San Diego sector, they've got double fence, uh, much of the area, real fencing, not just that Mickey Mouse stuff, not the old landing mats. Most of the old landing mat, if not all of it, is gone that I know of. Mm -hmm. I know it is in the Yuma sector where I finished my career, Right, but in San Diego, it's impressive what they've done out there to transform that border environment from what it used to be. You look at Imperial Beach, which is the first five miles along the border from the ocean mm-hmm. to the port of entry, and that area alone was total chaos. 
uh, price of property was down. They were people had things stolen out of their backyards all the time. There were always aliens running through the uh, neighborhood. There's helicopters, you know, border patrol helicopters flying over at night. There was just a lot of chaos. Right. And once the infrastructure was put up, the fencing, and then now the new fencing, and they changed some of the area where the border patrol had more access, uh, they were able to get control of that area. And the property values have gone up. A lot of the trails were that had been there for decades, finally grew over, really protected the environment down there. There's protected area, the estuary down there where the water flows in and out with the tide. Right. There's a bird down there called least turn that they were always worried about, you know, the environmentalists. So I think in terms of that, it's really helped to clean up the area down there, all the trash, all the just uh, impact on the environment. But it also really allowed the border patrol to finally get some control of that border that was just terribly out of control. Right, right. Now, when you were at Yuma, you were the chief patrol agent at Yuma. It was pretty much under control at that point, wasn't it? Because Yuma was, until past couple of years, it wasn't like a hotspot for a lot of crossings, was it? It was. And just to sort of go back, just so your listeners know where I kind of left off when I okay, was in San sure. Diego. But, but from there, I went to the academy as a law instructor and then later a firearms instructor. I transferred to Bortec headquarters in El Paso and served there as a team leader slash supervisor. Now I worked for two years in Washington, D.C. at our headquarters as an assistant chief. I went back to El Paso for three plus years as an agent in charge of the station. And then I went to what was then changed to SOG, the Bortec headquarters, then became SOG, the special operations group. And I became the national Bortec commander for a, a few years there, and then the director of the special operations group, which oversees all the special operations in the Border Patrol. Hmm. And during that time, I did a six-month stint in the Big Bend sector, which is used to be the, the Marfa sector, as the acting chief down there. That's in West Texas. Yes, West Texas. That's the largest geographically, 510 miles of linear border, but it has the smallest amount of manpower on the southern border for a sector because there's really not a lot of infrastructure on the south side of the sector. It's very remote throughout that sector. Right. So then getting to Yuma, I transferred to Yuma as the chief in 2015. And at the time, we probably apprehended in the neighborhood of eight to 10,000 people per year. Wow. <laughs> but looking back in, the, in 2005, Yuma sector was one of the busiest sectors in the country. Hmm at 137,000 plus for a year. And then the Fence Act of 2006 came into play. President Bush at the time made a couple of visits down there. Ron Coburn was the chief. They had a huge infrastructure project put in down there. National Guard went down there. They used the materials they had, which was a lot of landing mat, vehicle barrier, things like that, right. and built infrastructure. In one year in Yuma sector in 2005, they had hundreds of drive-throughs. I think it was in the 2,700 drive-throughs, which are vehicles that just drove across the border laden with people, drugs, whatever. You have no idea. And so that's just to be clear, they're not driving on roads. They're just driving, no. you know, between ports of entry across the border. Right. 
there was a three-strand barbed wire fence across the border, and you have the Mexican highway on one side, and you have Arizona desert on the U.S. side. Right. And they would just drive across there in vehicles out in the in the open. And the Border Patrol could only chase so many. You know, some would get away. You may catch one, most likely not, or they would drive back and get back away into Mexico. So it was a coordinated effort. That was a huge threat and risk to the country because we had no idea what was getting away as we do right now. But infrastructure was built that significantly reduced entries in that sector. And it went down all the way from that 137,000 high back then in 05 to in the 8,000 number for years until about 2018 when you know, you started to see an influx again because of the incredible fear in the family units and the, what we used to call rent-a-kid, where right. groups of people would come, and if you were a family group, you were released. And so they would find some kid down in Guatemala. A family would rent that kid to this adult for $200. They would make the journey north, come into the U.S. They would claim that that was their kid at the time. We... We're so overwhelmed. Sometimes we figured out that they it wasn't their kid just by behaviors and then some questioning. And I think many times we didn't. And we found hundreds of cases just in Yuma during that 2018, 2019 time frame where there were fraudulent family units. And we know because of investigations of many others that made it through that we didn't detect simply because we were overwhelmed and the agents didn't have time to apply that much time to an interview. Sure. Right. So when you retired, it was like toward the end of the Trump administration, right? Or was it beginning of the Biden administration? I was mandatory retirement in October of 2020. Okay. October the 31st of 2020 was my last official day. So before the elections. So when you retired, how was it? Because the Remain in Mexico had been implemented by then. Was there a certain stability? Because Rodney Scott, who was chief of the whole Border Patrol, I guess when you retired, and then right at the beginning of Biden administration, said that you know there had been a certain stability established at the border and that that evaporated under the new administration. So what was it like in Yuma when you retired? When I retired, and you're, you're absolutely right. So what happened was because of the influx and the fraud and misuse of really the credible fear asylum process and that was being exploited, these procedures, programs were put in place, remain in Mexico, uh, different other programs that have all since been stopped. But that significantly reduced the amount of traffic that came through the area. At that time, the high watermark was around 68,000 in 2018 or 2019, down to we were in back in the eight to 10,000. When I retired, we were apprehending about 40 to 50 per day. Right. And in South Texas, they're apprehending sometimes 5,000 a day. Yeah. So now, anyway, yeah, that's impressive. So what went wrong? Why did that change? from the 40 to 50 a day right when you left to a lot more now. I don't actually don't have the human numbers in front of me, but it's, it's not 40 or 50 a day, that's for sure. I just saw when we were there a few weeks ago, 
I just saw 30, 35 people at one place. It was 12 and 7 eighths. And they were the last batch of 250 that had come over that night. And the agents told us it was a slow night. So what went wrong? Their average is in 800 to 1,000 a day right now. Right. And a lot of them are give-ups. And I don't have the number for the gotaways, but I know that gotaways, just for example, last week alone in the Border Patrol, there were about 10,000 gotaways right. in one week. Those are people that the Border Patrol was able to count. They saw them on a camera. They saw their foot sign, their tracks coming across the border. They know that they can count the number, and these people evaded or eluded apprehension. Right. It's what Don Rumsfeld used to call the known unknowns, I guess. In other words, these are people you know you didn't catch, but then there's the people that you don't know you didn't catch, the unknown unknowns. Those people who didn't show up on a camera, didn't trigger a sensor, but got away anyway, which there's no really way to know that, but the gotaway number is actually a real number. It's not just people making something up off the top of their head. Absolutely. And you're right. There are places along the border where the Border Patrol does not have the manpower to patrol or go to investigate to see if there is any sign or traffic in that area that there was some illegal incursions. So you have a known 10,000 people got away last week right? along the southwest border. Primarily, there might be some, very few, up on the northern border. And then 35,000 apprehended, you know, 100 pounds of fentanyl, 150 pounds of meth, some cocaine, some ecstasy, 29 firearms seized, 11 sex offenders out of those, 35,000, four gang members, and 11 agents assaulted. So this is in one week. This is last week, most recent uh, information. And then you look at today in in Yuma, and some of those numbers come from the Yuma sector where you just mentioned. And you look at the things that we implemented back then that worked. Some of the pilot programs, some of the things like we used to call U-14, which was fingerprinting people and taking their picture under 14 years old. And so we, you know, Americans typically look at a 14-year-old as a, you know, innocent young kid that's, well, you, these are, you know, a 14 year old from El Salvador, Honduras, different places around the world is typically a different 14 year old kid than you're going to see in the United States. But those under 14 were not fingerprinted or photographed. And so we implemented a program where we were doing that so that we could track these people and at least identify them in case they were brought back again and recycled as a family unit. And then we also started a pilot program along with ICE to uh, this rapid DNA program, which when we could not break via an interview someone off of their claim that this was their kid, we would take DNA from both of them and determine if it was in fact a relation or not. And you could tell if it was a parent or some other distant relation. Right. Interesting. The programs that were put in place under Trump were very effective at deterring people from even leaving their country of origin to try to make that trek into the United States. They're very dangerous, but very lucrative to the cartels, to all everyone along the way, everyone that, that's peeling off money from these people along the way, up to the plaza bosses that 
gangs run these areas along the border where if you cross in this particular piece of the border from Mexico into the United States, you're paying a fare to get across for them to allow you to cross in that area. And it's usually a few hundred dollars per person. It depends on where it is, but uh, it's going to be two, three, four, five hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. So we, we estimated in one year that the local gang there in Mexico made approximately, just based on the number of people and the people that crossed, $10 million. And that's just the local, that's not the big cartel, that's just the local guys in charge of that piece of turf, basically. That local area, exactly. Hmm. And so what are they doing with that $10 million? Well, they're probably partying a lot of it away, Hmm. but they're also expanding their criminal enterprise with that money. They're buying more guns, they're buying more influence, they're paying off more of whoever to get their criminal enterprise moving along the way. So the impact of all of this illegal traffic coming across the border is more than just that local impact on that day. It stays around for a while because that money feeds these gangs. It brings more drugs into there. It brings more guns. It brings more violence. Just here in the human sector, a bandit was killed by the agents a few months ago that was robbing and raping and assaulting aliens right down near the border as they were crossing. So the agents, or TAC, conducted an operation in the area. The person had a, an assault rifle, AK-47, presented it to the agents. The agents ended up shooting and killing that bandit. And they just adapted the way they conduct business now. And now they come in with two people on an ATV and the one on the back who's not driving, has the uh, rifle, jumps off, robs people, grabs, takes them back to Mexico, whatever they're going to do. Right. And then they can easily get away from the uh, agents on the ATV. Interesting. So this is happening in the United States. Wow. So what can we do to fix this? Is it fixable? What could an administration that actually wanted to control the border do to turn this around? I think it's absolutely fixable. You know, really the problem is a, is a policy problem. There are plenty of laws on the books that, if enforced, would have a significant impact on reducing the level of illegal traffic across the border. I think that you have to start there with just enforcing the laws that we have. You have to actually deport people. There has to be a consequence, and you cannot release people into the U.S. to show up at some later date, potentially years away, to have their case determined because by then they're domiciled into the United States, likely have a child born in the United States, which is then a U.S. citizen. And even if their claim is denied, their credible fear or whatever claim they're making is denied, they're going to have some other mechanism to be able to stay in the United States because now they have a USC child or domiciled, and so there's going to be other avenues. So what you're doing is is really circumventing the entire immigration system, the immigration law, by allowing this really unfettered incursion across the border by millions of people and to be then released mostly, most of these people, into the United States for some hearing at a later date. Now, what you have to do if they are eligible for a hearing, it has to be something quick, like what we were doing 
back in the 2020 timeframe right. when they were getting an interview. They were staying at the station. They got an interview by an asylum officer, someone from the USCIS, and then a quick determination was made whether it was a valid claim or not valid to move forward. Mm-hmm. And that can happen. And the ones that are not valid have to be immediately deported because when people get released now at right. the border, they call their family and friends from wherever they came from and said, hey, it's open. Once you come in, say these words and you will be released. And many of these people have no intention of showing up for a hearing at a later date. Right. Some do, but many don't. Right. Yep. And so you've created this draw, this pull factor to pull people in when they look at it like, hey, I'll take my chances. It's better than where I'm at. And I will uh, take my chances and come across into the United States. So first of all, you have to keep people, you have to have the capacity to hold them, and you have to have consequences. You know, when the new administration took over, there have been over 80 executive orders that were signed in by the new administration, essentially undoing all the actions that previous actions that have reduced illegal cross-border traffic, things like remain in Mexico, right? expedited credible fear hearings, things like that. Now, we may see those come back. That's the Border Patrol now has been having installed these phone booths in many of the sectors that these aliens can use to talk to a USCIS officer. And this is because of the Title 42 potentially Sense setting on, I believe it's May the 11th. Right, yeah, that's scheduled. That's when it's going to end. And I think the administration is terrified of what the consequences are likely to be. Well, because all of the people that have been expelled via Title 42, Mexicans, others from Spanish-speaking countries that can be expelled under Title 42, and not all, because if they're not from Mexico, then they have to get on a flight, an airplane, right. be manifested onto that airplane, which takes, you know, anywhere from a few days to 14 days to get them. And then the Border Patrol has to hold them in that meantime to get people back to their country. And there's all kinds of roadblocks to making that happen as well. Mm -hmm. Colombia, for example, wants everyone to be COVID vaccinated that comes back to their country. (laughs) Other ones have to be COVID tested. There's, there's just significant roadblocks that countries put in place to keep from having these people to uh, return. The interesting thing, of course, is these countries can put up whatever roadblocks they want. The question is, do we twist their arms to accelerate you know, their approvals to take these people back? And under this administration, I just don't, I just don't think that anybody's afraid of them or takes any of their uh, arm twisting seriously if they're even trying to do it. There was a significant effort on the part of you know, Kevin McAleenan back in when he was the uh, commissioner and then the sec- acting secretary to work with these countries to find solutions to bringing their citizens back to their country, returned safely back to their country. Right. And I, I don't see that happening now. I think that that's you know, an effort that needs to be undertaken again. I think it's, it's a, a valid effort. I think that they're trying with the CBP-1 app. I, I'm not sure how effective that is. But you have to essentially also, you know, TVPRA, the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. One of the things in there defines who the uh, parent is, and it's a 
the biological parent of a child or it's the uh, legal guardian. So an illegal guardian is not just the guardian that the parent said, hey, grandmother, grandfather, take care of my kid. I'm going to the United States. They're the guardian, but they're not the legal guardian. Right. So if that grandparent brings that child into the United States, they're not the parent and they're not the legal guardian. So that requires, by law, a separation, and that child is then given to HHS. Right. So if it's an adult brother, a sibling, brother or sister, Mm -hmm. they're not a legal guardian or not the biological parent, separated. If it's the aunt and uncle of that child, they're also separated. So I think there could be some adjustments to that law where you would allow a family member to also, you know, without being a legal guardian, be considered the guardian if they in fact are. In other words, in order to make sure that they're deported together, basically? Yes, and to eliminate that separation of that child knows this person That's the person that they have a relationship with. And now you're taking that person out of that relationship, giving that child to HHS to determine where that child goes at that point. Find some other family member, the the parent, to reunite that person with the parent. It's it's a problem for the Border Patrol Mm -hmm. uh, because the Border Patrol now has to deal with that. Right, right. Exactly. Okay, so uh, what do you expect or fear once... Title 42 is lifted, assuming that happens on May 11th, which should be a few weeks after this airs. I think that there's going to be a significant influx of people because if everyone that wants to come over from Mexico or, say, Venezuela, who were expelled under Title 42, or Colombia or whatever country, you name it, Ecuador, there's a significant amount of people coming from Ecuador, Colombia, mm-hmm. Venezuela, Peru that are currently being expelled under Title 42, if now you don't have that mechanism to send those people back, now every one of those people can make a claim that they want an immigration hearing and they're entitled to an immigration hearing because we no longer have Title 42 in play. And so now they're going to, because the, the system is so backlogged by millions of people, that they are now going to be released into the U.S. pending their immigration hearing. And so that is just going to continue to be a pull factor for all these demographics that have been expelled under Title 42 and now come into the country and not be expelled. Right. So we're over time here. I just wanted to, one last thing I wanted to just touch on that you now consult for a company that deals with other countries trying to control their border, which I always thought was pretty interesting. And unfortunately, our government is not consulting with people who have the experience on how to control our own border. Yeah. You know, during my career, I went to many, many, many foreign countries to consult with them as a government employee and work with them on how to strengthen their border security in whatever country it was. Right. Ukraine, Costa Rica, Honduras, Guatemala, you know, Panama, a number of countries. And now I go to countries and work with them on how to improve their border security by consulting them, how to use technology, how to improve their tactics, training, preparation of their agents, selection, and use of other technology like 
sensors and drones right. and things like that. Right. Interesting. Uh, at least your expertise is being used on somebody's border, if not on ours. We got to wrap it up here. Thank you, Tony Provoznik, retired Border Patrol agent, left as chief of the Border Patrol in the Yuma sector, which is sort of the western edge of Arizona where it meets California. Really appreciate your time. Appreciate your time visiting with our border tour group a few weeks back. And is there anything you want to plug as far as you know, where people could go or where they could see more about what you do? Not really. I'm not advertising. You know, I have my own LLC, AJ Provoznik uh, Consulting, and I do border security consulting. So I'm always, you know, looking for other gigs, but uh, I typically stay busy enough. Right. Okay, great. Okay, well, thanks for uh, joining us, Tony, and stay uh, cool out there in Arizona and hope to talk to you again soon. Absolutely. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. Thanks. And finally, I just wanted to draw your attention to an important piece of legislation that this week was marked up, in other words, amended and dealt with in committee. And it's a border control measure sponsored originally by Congressman Chip Roy, and it would address a lot of the most obvious problems that we're dealing with at the border would limit the executive branch's ability to abuse the parole power, which they're using to just let people go, illegal immigrants who have no right to be here, just let them go into the United States. The administration, since the president was sworn in, so in a little more than two years, has released into the United States people it had in its custody who are illegal immigrants, released more than two million of them. We have the um, calculations on a blog post by Andrew Arthur, and that's only the ones that we have publicly available information from court filings and other things. This number is almost certainly higher, but this administration has now released more illegal immigrants into the United States than it has given out green cards. In other words, the illegal immigration has now exceeded legal immigration, which I think is probably the first time that's happened ever, or at least in a very long time. And this piece of legislation would address some of that. Uh, it wouldn't necessarily fix anything, but it would reinforce the mandate to detain illegal immigrants, which is what the law says now. It would end the Flores Agreement. Those of you who follow this will know it's a loophole, basically, that mandates the release of illegal immigrants who bring children with them because they can't be detained more than three weeks. And the legislation was voted out of committee, so it's made its first step. And uh, it also would tighten up asylum and make it less amenable to abuse. It's probably not going to end up signed into law because not only does it have to be approved by the full House, where the Republicans only have a four or five seat majority, but then it would have to go to the Senate which is controlled by the Democrats, then would have to be signed by the president. So there's a lot of hurdles that make it unlikely this bill in this Congress will end up being enacted into law. But it nonetheless is an important first step in providing a roadmap of what needs to be done to restore control at the border. And I think that's important because critics of what's happening or what's been happening for the past two years with the uh, disaster at the border, and it truly is a disaster, can't just be complaining 
need to offer concrete solutions. We at the center here have done that, as have many others. This is so far the first roadmap on what to do and how to respond in this Congress with the Republicans in the majority in the House of Representatives. And one of the other things that's notable in it is that it mandates E-Verify, the use of E-Verify for new hires. And that may seem odd in a border-focused bill because there's a lot of other things related to interior enforcement, for instance, that are not in this bill. But reducing the magnet that pulls illegal immigrants here in the first place is essential part of border security. So uh, it makes sense to have included E-Verify, an E-Verify mandate in this bill. So we'll see where it goes. There's going to be other legislation. And like I said, the odds of this actually being signed by the president are pretty low since President Biden has been insistent on keeping the borders as loose as possible. Nonetheless, it's an important first step, and I advise anyone who's interested in this issue to keep an eye on the progress of the legislation, as we will be doing here at the center and other groups are doing as well. This is Mark Krikorian, your host and director of the Center for Immigration Studies, hoping that you tune in next week for our next episode of Parsing Immigration Policy. <music>